Welcome to another Directions Mag podcast, co-hosted with our friends at Eurissa. So today we are here to talk about the 2020 census and what's next for GIS. We are honored to have Matt Gerke and Mark Salling with us today to explore this topic more deeply. GIS professionals work with a number of U.S. census programs, from boundary and annexation surveys and local update of census operations to using data from the Decennial Census American Community Survey and Estimate programs. Leading up to the Decennial Census date, local and regional government staff may also assist in getting the word out about the census, working to increase participation and striving for an accurate count. As soon as April 1st passes, however, attention shifts to a few other topics. Today, we want to explore some topics and thoughts for GIS professionals to consider as they shift from completing the 2020 census to what comes next. The decennial census is the only census product to release 100% counts at the block level. Matt, what does that mean and what challenges do we face between now and February 2021 when the first block level data is released? So the, the, the block is the, the smallest piece of the census geography, and, and it's really as simple as thinking about if you walk outside your house or your office building or your school and you're facing the street, there's a street in front of you, there's a street to your right, there's a street to your left, and there's a street behind you. And, and piecing those segments together is, is a block in, in, the, in the census terminology. While the census releases uh, a lot of data at a lot of different scales, uh, blocks roll up to block groups, block groups roll up to tracks, and you also have uh, local government boundaries and county boundaries, uh, state boundaries. Uh, the decennial census is the, the only product that tries to count people at 100% at the block level and is the only data product that uh, issues that data at that resolution where, where you can, in the GIS, click on it and see, okay, within this bounded by four street area, you know, there are four people living or 25 people living or, or 50 people living. Um, and so a lot of the other census programs that uh, fill the gap at other census geographies, uh, such as block groups and tracks and, and counties, uh, between the decennial census. And so if it's the different versions of the American Community Survey uh, that, that use uh, uh, one-year estimates or five-year estimates, or if it's from some of the other uh, county population, city population estimate programs, um, th those, those aren't taken down to, to the block level. It's usually dealing with the, those aggregations of those. Um, and, and while useful, and, and while the, the statistical methods to do those estimates uh, have, uh, have improved o over time, the longer we get out from that 100% count at, at the block level, uh, the, the, the harder it sometimes is to, to really know or understand what's going on at, at very local spatial scales. So there, there are a couple challenges that, that we have when, when thinking about this or addressing this. Um, one is we're really on the long end of having up-to-date block-level data. 
and especially in urban areas or urbanizing areas or areas that are seeing a lot of uh, uh, redevelopment of housing uh, over the last 10 years. The, the, the only block data that we have right now with population counts may not reflect what's on the ground and, and may not reflect what's been on the ground for nine years and, and won't reflect what's on the ground until February when we start to see some of this block level data release. And so it's sometimes challenging to, uh, uh, to, to be able to have good localized uh, counts and analysis based on population because so much of the landscape around us can change within 10 years. The, the other challenge that, that we have, uh, especially if uh, uh, we, we try to rely on some of the other American Community Survey or estimate programs uh, to have an idea of what a county population is or a city population is or a neighborhood population is, uh, is that the black level data with the decennial census kind of helps us recalibrate and baseline what those different estimates are. Um, a lot of these are coming from the, the 2010 census, and as uh, other reports and data and variables and, and things come in and that change over time, the, those estimate methods are, are, are giving us a projection at those different spatial scales of how many people are living there and what some of the characteristics are and, and housing unit numbers and, and, uh, and whatnot. Uh, but it'll really be that, that block level release and then the subsequent uh, census data releases that, that build off of that, that uh, really help uh, baseline and recalibrate uh, what those estimates are and, and give that, that 10 year uh, reference data point of what's going on at ground condition to help inform them. That's a really important point, Matt. Can I jump in? I work at a university and I've taught courses uh, that include talking about the census. And I've gotten questions from students, you know, why do we need to spend so much money every 10 years? It's very expensive. We have the American Community Survey and we have the population estimates programs. Why can't we just use that data? And so I have to explain to them that um, those other um, data sets that um, people want and need are really based on that uh, start off with the with the decennial census as you were saying so in order to come up with population estimates between the decennial censuses the census bureau adds births and subtracts deaths and then figures in net migration to come up with the population estimates and those data then are used as control totals for the american community survey data that's collected so the decennial census is really important for all the other data that uh, that a lot of us use those are great points. Um, thank you, gentlemen. So, Matt, how are the new census products released? So, one of the new things that the census is rolling out is that they are transitioning from American Fact Finder, uh, which folks were able to use for the 2010 census data and a lot of the recent American Community Survey data, uh, to a new data.census.gov platform. American Fact Finder will be going offline at the end of March 2020, and no 2020 census products will ever be available on American Fact Finder. The implication for GIS users that do not frequently use census data is that they will have to learn a new data.census.gov platform 
in order to be able to access any of the new census data that's being released. And if you have not accessed data in 2010, this tool will likely be new for you. Data.census.gov is based on the Census API, uh, which they have been developing for a few years and, and provides two opportunities. Uh, one is that the Census API may be a new or different or possibly better way for you to access and interact with the data which you seek. The other side of the coin is that since the Census API is structured a little bit differently than how American Fact Finder was, as you dive in and use this new platform, you may have to spend some time thinking about how it works and how it's organized in order to be able to find the information that you'd really like to pull out of it and, and use as, as you're preparing to use the census data. Uh, similar to how census data has worked in the past, uh, it, it'll be a, a rolling cycle of data and things will appear in this new platform over time. One way of preparing for the future uh, might be to learn the new tools and using the data.census.gov platform uh, in search for data tables and products from the 2010 census that you would like to use in the 2020 census. Uh, they've been moving over some of the, the older decennial census and American Community Survey uh, products that, to help populate the data.census.gov platform. While they're moving to this new platform, that uh, they are still continuing to put data on the on the older FTP website, and uh, and you still have the option to to access uh, both geography data and tabular data uh, from the www.census.gov uh, FTP site uh, to access those data in those formats. Because the data.census.gov platform is brand new, uh, there's still a little bit of uncertainty about if it will have uh, contained some of the data that American Fact Finder did not uh, that you used to have to go to the FTP site to find, uh, such as downloading uh, uh, block level attribute uh, table responses or, or downloading whole state geographies uh, rather than just the limitations of blocks for a, a county that American Fact Finder had. When will we start seeing the new census data? Similar to previous uh, decennial census releases, there there's a, a rolling schedule with the most most uh, uh, timely data based on legislative requirements, and that would be the redistricting data coming first, and then other data products being released slowly uh, over time. So federal law requires that by December 2020, uh, the apportionment counts be delivered to the President of the United States, and by April 1st of 2021. Uh, the redistricting data uh, covered under Public Law 94-171 is released to the states. And that's really the, the, the pieces of data that are needed for the redistricting process. After that requirement is met, uh, we should expect to see uh, attribute data releases uh, from May 2021, uh, mostly through September 2022, although current census planning documents 
uh, run the timeline out to April 2023 is when we should expect the complete release of 2020 census data products. As the Census Bureau transitions from conducting the census and, and completing the re, uh, redistricting data to pushing out and promoting the data, uh, we should expect to see uh, uh, more clear timelines about specific data releases and, and, and the timelines at which we expect them to be released. At this point in time, uh, the, the best timelines come from the 2020 Census Operational Plans document, uh, which has the clearly stated beginning point and, and the goal endpoint. Uh, but the different versions of the releases from complete counts to the, the uh, varieties of population counts and housing counts and other census counts uh, has yet to be completely uh, released. According to the operational plan, though, we should expect the final 2020 census, according to the same operational plan, the final 2020 census tabulation geography products will be delivered in November 2020. This means that we can go to the uh, Tiger portion of the census website and download as geodatabases or shapefiles uh, the counties, tracts, block groups, blocks, and other elements of, of census geography. Uh, and that will not change after that date. Uh, what will happen after that point for the next two years is the release of the different attribute data that will be used to map back and join to uh, the, those geography data products. So you mentioned looking at previous versions of the data on some of these resources uh, and all of us using modern GIS tools um, realize that the, the tools do some really cool things, but as these products are released, should we expect them to spatially correspond to those earlier census and American Community Service uh, Community Survey products? I would not expect them to spatially correspond, <laughs> and, and probably okay. mostly at the block and block group levels. Uh, the, the higher you get in, in the hierarchy with uh, with tracks and um, town boundaries, county boundaries, um, those are less likely to change, uh, except in, in cases of, uh, of annexation of unincorporated county areas into incorporated cities. Uh, we kind of expect to see some changes there. Uh, over the, the past 10 years, and, and really working from the, the 2010 census, uh, the Census Bureau has developed new programs and done outreach to collect feedback and, and data changes and, and recommendations uh, from folks working with the, the data in the local levels trying to make uh, uh, blocks and block groups uh, and, and the town boundaries as representative as possible in the census geography uh, to what exists uh, out there in, in the real world. And, and through those processes, uh, folks in local government working uh, uh, with the census data may have more of an idea uh, of, of how what those changes may look like. Uh, but if you haven't been involved in that process and, and you uh, use census data for, for analysis for a, a company or a nonprofit, um, you, you may not know that those changes are coming or, or, or what those may look like. Um, usually we'll see some, some shifts uh, in, mm -hmm. in line work. Uh, especially right. if uh, uh, blocks are, are rolled up in, into different block groups, 
um, sometimes block group boundaries uh, shift. Um, the other thing to pay attention to is that if new streets have been constructed in an area uh, in the last 10 years, uh, we'd expect some of those to be adapted and reflected. And where there may have been one block in the past, there, there may be 25 blocks. Uh, as as the uh, the development and the expansion is, is captured in that data, it, it is something to be aware of, especially if you're doing uh, a comparative analysis using mm -hmm. several different vintages of of the, the census tiger files. Um, that uh, just because it looks like it's a one-to-one -one spatial relationship may not mean that it's a one-to-one -one spatial relationship. Uh, because sometimes those uh, line adjustments are, are very small and, and very hard to notice. Uh, so it is something to be made aware of. Uh, but also if you're doing spatial analysis across two different geographies and, and, and they don't line up, uh, that may run into some problems that you, you may want to think about and account for of um, how you may do the mathematical operations or output uh, of, of those overlay techniques. Um, do, do you really want to sum if you think you might be double counting the, the population and, and also suggest some, some other strategies uh, such as um, if we want to look at the 1990 to 2000 to 2010 to 2020 uh, change in an area at, at the block level or at the block group level, do we want to try to standardize all those to use the same geography? and look at that same, if that geometry of that block group has changed over time, which one do you standardize to? Or how do you account for the, the, those differences where it's still the same block group, it still may have the same number, um, but the shape of that may change over time. And, and, and how do you try to keep that consistent in, in your analysis? Um, there isn't always a clear path forward in terms of, of making those those decisions of, of, of how to account for that, but there are issues that folks that use census data need to be aware of because there, there may be differences that will certainly impact uh, their use of the data, especially over different time slices. Yeah, uh, if I can add, um, I think actually uh, there will be a lot of changes with the 2020 Tiger files. Um, you know, census tract boundaries will change in many places, uh, especially in uh, growing places, as Matt points out, with new development. Um, and so, um, uh, and also when, when population decreases in old urban areas, for example, like we have in Cleveland, the census tract requirements for, for population mean that um, sometimes census tract boundaries have to, have to census tracts have to be combined or, or at least uh, significant boundary changes occur. So that's where a GIS uh, expert uh, professional uh, can really be very helpful uh, to city planning and to other organizations that require looking at uh, at population changes over time. Um, so when you want to look at uh, you know 2010 to 2020 or 21 or or later kinds of uh, demographic changes, you're going to have to um, convert uh, your data uh, in some estimation procedure. To a standard geography, and so um, many times one does a an apportionment um, of population in a given a polygon based on the uh, on the split that occurs. So you apportion, you know, 20% of the population to one side of the split polygon and 80% of the population to the 
to the other side of the polygon uh, based on area apportionment. That's one method. There are a number of other methods, but this is where a GIS professional can do that kind of thing. They can split the, 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 uh, um, the polygons based on overlays and intersects and, uh, and produce good data for all kinds of applications and analyses. So I think the GIS professional is really going to be very important, even more important uh, during times of change in geography like we're going to see mm -hmm. after the 2020 census. So true, Mark. Thank you. Let's move on to uh, another thing that comes next, which would be redistricting. So the first data release uh, complies with the PL94-171, which provides redistricting data summary files and the geographic supporting products, including shape files, PDF maps, block assignment files, and the 2010 to 2020 tabulation block crosswalks. So Mark, what should GIS professionals be doing now to prepare for redistricting, be it municipal wards, local voting districts, state legislative districts, or congressional districts? Probably the first thing to do is, if you're working for an organization that requires you to be working on these things, is include it in your budget, <laughs> um, because it's <laughs> going to be a lot of it's going to be a lot of work. Um, so things you can do. Um, the uh, the 2020 Tiger data will be released uh, sometime this next year um, um, in preparation for the redistricting that will start taking place after the release of the 2020 census at the block level um, in, in, in roughly March and April next year. So we're talking about a year from now. But before then, the, the Tiger data will be out and it's being released by state. So find out when your state um, data set, your Tiger data are available, download it and, um, and start getting it ready uh, in a number of ways. We in Ohio, for example, have an issue where census tract boundaries and municipal boundaries extend out in the Lake Erie uh, all the way to the international boundaries. So we have to clip them because we don't like to show maps that show a uh, municipality or a county reaching out into the, into the lake. So there are things to, to, uh, to do to prepare that data um, in the first place. Um, as I say. Um, the other thing you can do is if you're going to be involved in redistricting, is there going to be other data that you need, not just the redistricting data set, the PL94171 data that's at the block level, which is the primary data, obviously, for uh, making sure that uh, uh, congressional, uh, state districts, and even wards are, are, um, are equal in population, which is one of the requirements. But um, you're going to need other kinds of data, probably. Um, most redistricting processes involve looking at recent election results so that you can see where the votes occurred for Republicans and Democrats and other parties, uh, along with the population data, because um, those that are drawing those boundaries want to make sure that uh, if, they're, if they're Republicans or Democrats in charge, want to make sure they're maximizing um, their potential to win elections. Uh, and so they want to know what the propensity for voting for Republicans or Democrats is like in, in, uh, in the area. So you can start thinking about, um, you know, where's your board of elections? Where's your state uh, um, secretary of state? Uh, where's that data? How, how do they store it? How can you download it? Because having that data available in time and, and ready to use would help with the, when you finally get the census data, the PL94-171 data, population data, will help you start getting uh, going on 
not only allocating population to different boundaries of, of districts, but also taking a look at the, um, at the partisan distribution as well. There are issues there uh, which we can get into, but you know those are the, those are some of the first things to consider. There are other considerations. You know, maybe you want to start looking at some of the ACS data uh, to see you know where there are what are called communities of interest, because some redistricting plans require not only equal population but also um, trying to keep uh, all whole counties together because uh, or cities because it's felt that. Um, those are, are what are called communities of interest or different income groups or other kinds of characteristics of the population that maybe you want to uh, concentrate in, in, um, in a district so that they have sort of a commonality of political interest uh, in that district. Now, that's a controversial kind of uh, a thing, but that could be part of the consideration in drawing mm -hmm. boundaries. You know, there's a, a thought there of the every state uh, a lot of localities all have have their own rules and guidance and laws that govern how the redistricting or reapportionment process works uh, for that political entity uh, and so if uh, as we get closer to this and we talk more about redistricting and reapportionment and what that means uh, it, it's also a good idea if if it's been 10 years uh, uh, since you uh, went back and looked at and verified uh, what your organization's guidelines are, uh, or if they've changed since then, or if you may be working uh, with some uh, a, a, a different political entity than you did before, uh, going back to that baseline and, and seeing what what the, the policy guidance, the ordinance, the, the legislation says. Yeah, let me jump in and, and say that uh, you know some of the preparation, uh, as I mentioned, is, is you know knowing uh, something about your either your local boards of elections or the secretary of state and whether or not they have um, boundary files as well as election results that I mentioned. So you know you're getting your precinct boundary files may be important. So because the election results are reported by precinct in most cases, not by block, and so when re when redrawing the boundaries, um, one has to apportion the uh, election results to the block level or vice versa add up the blocks to the precinct and sometimes that means you're you've got split blocks for example and so that's another function that the gis professional can perform um, so there are, there are um, you know issues in terms of the different geography that comes from different sources the census bureau's tiger file is one source but uh, the um, uh, the election data is going to be uh, probably a, a, a different geography like i said precincts and so the professional has to uh, think about uh, and be prepared for how to do um, estimation, basically, or allocation of the, either the election results to the census geography or vice versa, the census uh, population data to the election uh, geography, whether it's precincts or wards or whatever. So, and, uh, so there's a lot of preparation that the, that the, um, that the professional who's going to be involved in redistricting mm -hmm. can do between now and, and when the Census Bureau releases its data. So you mentioned or hinted at this, Mark, that, you know, there are other issues and concerns, and I, I'm going to guess that those are ethical issues and concerns um, related to working with the data and redistricting. Uh, you want to touch on a few of those for us and how GIS professionals can help make that easier for folks? 
Yeah, so I'm I'm particularly concerned, and a number of us are. Uh, those of us in ERISA have actually formed a, uh, a sort of a working group on ethics and social responsibility in, in our work. And, and one area uh, that we want to touch on, in fact, there's going to be a panel at the GIS Pro 2020 conference in Baltimore in the fall, um, talking about the ethical issues with redistricting. And with redistricting, like a lot of other applications, it, it, we're technicians largely. You know, we we know how to use the GIS tools, and we do them for good good purposes. We I think we all believe that our our work is very valuable to the public. And mm -hmm. sometimes uh, we have to uh, think about whether or not we're, what we're doing is actually in the public interest. And I've been involved with uh, redistricting issues for a while now, and the issue of a partisan, extreme partisanship in how boundaries are drawn in many cases. And for somebody who's gonna be involved in, in the actual drawing of those political districts, even if you're just, a, I shouldn't say just, even if you're a technician who's, who's implementing a redistricting plan that politicians, the state legislature um, or commission are asking you to, to produce or getting your advice about how to draw those boundaries, there are, there are issues uh, about what's fair um, and, and, uh, and what's in the public interest. And what I'm asking, uh, and a number of us are asking of the GIS professional is to, we understand the, 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 the job responsibilities and the pressure to, to, to perform and to please the bosses, et cetera, but to take into account your own sensibilities about what is right and what is fair, et cetera, and do what you can. Maybe you can't do much, depends on where you are and what your circumstances are, but to you know, reflect on what you think is actually in the public interest and where you can to advise those above you or around you about those kinds of issues and to think about those things and to see what you can do on your own um, to make sure that what your profession is, is all about is, um, is also fair to um, the public. You know, we, when we are GIS, uh, uh, professionals and we're certified, we, we sign a, a document that is about ethics. And in that right. document, it, it has a number of uh, specifications about what is ethical and what should be expected of a GIS professional. And included in there is to ensure that what you're doing is in the public interest. And so I, I, I recommend that uh, GIS professionals go back and look at that document. I would ask you to do that. Um, and just read through it and think about it and to and to think about how what you do, whether it's redistricting or any other um, uh, task and, and project that you're working on as a jazz professional, how that code of ethics uh, might affect how you do your job. And so um, th those are important considerations. So going back to redistricting, there's there are issues about whether or not districts ought to be competitive, for example, or whether or not they, they are uh, Proportionally representative. So, if in a state, uh, one party is in control of how the, the boundaries are drawn, and that party is re really good at drawing those boundaries through their GIS capabilities, so that they win a very disproportionate number of, of elections compared to how many people actually vote for that party. So, for example, you know, you might have a, a, a political party that's won 52% uh, of the vote in a state but they win 60 or 70% of the seats. Well, that's representational uh, fairness issue. Um, and, uh, and then there's competitiveness. Do we want competitive districts or all kinds of issues and reasons why competitive districts are 
uh, are to our advantage, and and there are different feelings about that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we all talk about in redistricting the issue of compactness. That that's a that's a goal, but compactness is really just a, a way of measuring whether or not somebody has drawn lines in a very gerrymandered uh, fashion, twisting and turning, and uh, and that sort of thing. It's just really an indication of that process that's taken place in drawing the boundaries. You know, in Ohio, we have a district which is, uh, which you could say is very gerrymandered, a congressional district, which actually is, is I would say, uh, a fair district because it really represents Appalachian, Ohio, which is in the southeast part of the state. And it doesn't, it's not very compact, but you could say, you could argue that, you know, the, the, the folks in Appalachia part of the, Appalachian part of the state, you know, should have a representative in Congress. Uh, it's reasonable. Um, and so there's a community of interest um, concern, for example. So when one draws a political boundaries, whether it's congressional, the state legislature, or even uh, wards, there are a number of things that uh, need to be considered. You know, you do want to look at compactness because it's an indication of whether or not um, you're, you're twisting those lines for some other purpose. But, you know, whether or not it, it represents the parties in a fair way according to the votes of the, of the people. And whether or not you've got um, um, districts which offer uh, a competitiveness uh, among the parties, because that brings people uh, to have to speak to the other side. Uh, the politicians have to speak to the other side in order to win an election. And so for that reason, people think, some people think that competitiveness is very important. So I'm not um, um, suggesting that there's any one criteria that's more important than the other. And I'm not suggesting that the uh, GIS professional who might be involved in drawing those boundaries um, you know, um, has to uh, uh, go out of his or her way uh, in, in, in a major way to, to ensure these kinds of, of uh, considerations are in place. But I want the GIS professional to think about those things and to do what they can uh, to be ethical uh, and to live up to the code of ethics. The other aspect that, about ethics and the GIS professional concerning redistricting that I would offer out there is that even if you're not one of those uh, jazz professionals actually drawing the lines or helping to draw the lines. If you are important, if you think that it's an important issue, you can get involved with um, with local efforts to um, monitor uh, how the redistricting process is going on um, by evaluating the the plan that's being proposed by the politicians, for example, and come up with alternatives that come up with measures of fairness uh, in terms of number of competitive districts or or whatever that that uh, can be presented to the public and to have the public judge whether or not the politicians or whoever the commission, whoever's drawing those uh, political boundaries, who's charged with drawing those political boundaries, whether they're doing a good job and doing a job in the uh, interest of the public. So it, you can you can either do it on the job or if you're really inspired and you want to volunteer some of your expertise, you can definitely get involved with with doing those kinds of things. Thanks, Mark. Lots of great information. Last couple of questions here for us today. So this is for both of you. What should GIS professionals be doing now to prepare for new census data releases? And then in terms of what is possible or what they could be doing. So for, for my perspective, there, there are a few easy things that we should be doing to, to help prepare. Um, we know the, the census is coming. We know the census data products uh, are coming. We, we know the updated geography is coming. 
uh, and those follow uh, release schedules and cycles that are posted on the on the census website. Um, an easy thing to do to to help prepare is look at what the release dates are for the different products, figuring out where your state is. Uh, put calendar appointments on your calendar uh, uh, to, to remind you, you know, at the beginning of the month, at the end of the month, uh, to, to to go in and check uh, to see if, if those products are released yet, so that when they are, uh, you're not losing any time of uh, of working with them and, and working with those new products to 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 use it in the different ways that that you may use them. Um, the the second part of of that is. We know what's coming. We know what format it's going to come in. Uh, we, we know what that's going to look like. Uh, figuring out some of those processes of how you want to manage that, how you want to store that. Uh, if you want to have your your geodatabases or, or your feature classes set up in, in, in a similar way, uh, may allow you to more quickly start working with the new data, or, or look for changes, or join the attributes to the geometry. And, and make it operational for you uh, more quickly. Um, and that kind of leads over into some thoughts on, on what you could be doing. Uh, in my experience, uh, most of the time GIS professionals work with census data. It's pulling down the geography files, pulling down the attribute files, manually joining them and saving them and, and using them for a project or, or, or a process. Um, so it's worth considering while, while we have a little bit of time, um, is there a architecture scheme or file naming conventions uh, that may make sense for you not just to organize the, the 2020 census data, but other census data and census data products you may commonly use? Um, is it worth standardizing what you already have and, and trying to build a consistent model? Uh, if you do that, does it suggest that there may be uh, opportunities uh, on the coding or automated side or, or tool development side that, that might help you not only ingest new census data products, whatever they may be, uh, more quickly, but also make sure you do it in, in a consistent, repetitive fashion and you're doing the right steps in the right order? Um, the time that we have and until these new products are released gives us some time to, to think about where maybe we could do that and, and not just make our, our, our life a little bit easier when the new products are released, uh, but also give us uh, better confidence and organization with, uh, with the data that we're using and how we're assembling it. Yeah, I think that's good stuff. I, I, I'm, I'm going to add that um, uh, you know, there are probably others in your community out there that uh, are facing the same issues about how to get ready and to uh, uh, adjust to the fact that there's going to be new geography with Tiger 2020, et cetera. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of re repetition. You're going to be doing some things to prepare and um, and to use the data, and some other organization uh, is going to be doing the same thing. So if you're not already doing it, I guess I'd ask you to, you know, think about reaching out to some of the other organizations that probably are facing the same issues and maybe develop a working group um, where you can share data. So, you know, one, one organization can be working on one aspect of, uh, of the transition and another organization can be doing something else. And so you can share the results instead of having a lot of redundancy and effort. Uh, and that builds, that builds cooperation, collaboration, uh, beyond just the technical work of getting the data uh, ready, et cetera, 
It means that uh, you might actually um, be able to do projects together in the future and get funding, et cetera. So a, lot, a lot of potential, and I really encourage collaboration, um, you know, at the local level, at the state level, et cetera, so that um, so that you get the most out of out of what you're doing. A special thanks to Matt and Mark for joining us today to talk about what's next in GIS after the 2020 census. We hope that you'll join us for more podcasts, webinars, and articles at directionsmag.com.